Hi, my name is Ben Atkinson and welcome to the Functional Health Podcast. I interview some of the leading voices in nutrition and lifestyle medicine and I will share with you their stories, their expertise and their advice, shedding light on the industry from each of their perspectives to help improve your health from today. This week, I'm delighted to share with you my conversation with Dr. Nilesh Satguru. Nilesh is a high-performance coach, speaker, and GP with a mission to help inspire a community to believe in growth. We talk about elements of positive psychology, ranging from getting rid of negative beliefs to ways to cultivate joy and happiness in your own life. I thoroughly enjoyed this one. So, without further ado, Nilesh, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me, Ben. Oh, you're so welcome, mate. And you know, I've, I've wanted to have you on for quite some time, ever since you've kicked off this kind of coaching element um, on your on your Instagram. And there's tons of videos you release now. Yeah, I've been really enjoying putting some creative expression out there. And yeah, it's great to connect. I've actually been following your podcast. I listen to quite a few different people on there. And I've seen that you've had some amazing guests and your background's also very interesting. Yeah, thank you very much. Well, I do try. This is definitely a passion project of mine. It never gets boring, which is great. Um, so you have quite a unique background and an interesting view on, I guess, the world, but both in the, the medical profession and also in the, the remit of personal development. Maybe you can just give a background of like how you got started and how you kind of got into this space, both in lifestyle medicine and the coaching. Yeah, no problem. So I think probably best to share a little story sure uh, if, we, if we take us back to 2000 um so at the time i was about 11 years old and i remember i was cycling home from hockey practice in the netherlands where i was living at the time and there was this like green leafy village and little canal outside a house it's a beautiful part of the of the netherlands and as i came into the driveway i saw there was a the car that was there that wasn't usually there and i opened the door and there was a doctor standing in the doorway and I could see my father in bed and the whole left side of his body was, was motionless. And he'd had a stroke that day and went to the hospital with him and fast forward about 10 years later. And my dad was actually driving me home from medical school, first year of medical school. And he turned to me, tried to speak to me, but he just lost the ability to speak fluently. And he was having a mini stroke right in front of me whilst driving that day, he took him to hospital again went home, got discharged, and then had a heart attack the following day. So he had a stroke, a mini stroke, and a heart attack within the space of 10 years. Amazing that my father recovered a full recovery from the first stroke and went back to work, of course. And this was all those three big events were, you know, he, he was in his uh, 50s at the time when even the second events happened. So he was 47 when the first stuff happened. So he was quite young. And the reason why I share that story is because I know a lot of people will resonate with that. Now, that brought up a lot of questions. I went to medical school and started to think, okay, so we've got these strokes, heart attacks, diabetes, these seem to be preventable, treatable and reversible conditions. So I thought I'd become a GP uh, with all the passion and enthusiasm and empower people to take charge of their health and prevent these conditions. But then I quickly started to realize that the skills that I picked up in my GP training, which were amazing for a certain group of people, and it was fantastic training, but about, you know, a, a big proportion of them, um, just it, well, the skills just weren't fit for them. 
And there was a lot of pain with that, Ben, actually. The truth being told, there was a lot of pain starting uh, my job as a GP partner with all this passion and enthusiasm, just having the wind kind of taken out of your sails a little bit, knowing that the skills that you had been taught perhaps weren't fit for, for what most people needed. So that brought up a lot of questions and pain and frustration. And uh, a partner, my one of my GP partners at the time, introduced me to lifestyle medicine. And it was once I, I saw that, I just went all in. You know, I, I went on Rongan's course. I booked yeah. onto about four other courses through the British Society of Lifestyle Medicine, became a director. And, you know, it was just something really that I remember quite clearly then that night I got home after prescribing lifestyle medicine, Rongan's course, and I stayed up late at night just reading all the studies that had been, um, you know, referenced. And I thought, wow, I never do this. I never did this at any point in my career, but I just felt so... Um, inspired so that's what led me into lifestyle medicine and along the way anyone who who's into personal growth or has experienced personal growth seminars or courses I'm put a pretty big bet on it that there's some pain that preceded that entry into personal growth there's this great phrase that's um, light only enters uh, a place that's wounded um, so I, I actually left my GP partnership through various struggles that, that was, was going on. And it, I just felt there was something deep inside that just felt it wasn't right for me to work there. And it was my dream job. Hey, you hear the story quite often. So without signing too cliche, but I used to drive past this village and see the small village. I think oh, I'd love to be a GP there. And I got into this job and I could have been in that job for 38 years. <laughs> it was a it was 38 year job security you know it was like put down your roots this is it and and then I quickly realized it wasn't quite what it seemed so I left and through that I got into personal growth I had my son was having challenges with his development and that really led to this intersection with personal growth and lifestyle medicine so that's quite a long-winded story but uh, that there's my there's my story no it's incredibly interesting and, you know, you really resonated with me there where period of growth kind of follows periods of pain, difficult to articulate. And one of the reasons which I don't really talk about why I got interested in lifestyle medicine and kind of this space was because um, a lot of my close friends and family members having, you know, relatively mild to, to chronic mental health issues right mm -hmm. and it's nothing and, and it's very commonplace in terms of mild mild depression whether you're medicated or not mm. um or bipolar disorder or things of this nature and i really didn't understand what it was about and these kind of medications which were given mm -hmm. to them weren't necessarily well what i thought was they weren't necessarily helping them in the long term it was you, you know you've heard the phrase of like you, you're putting a bandage over like a attack in your foot essentially or like yes. the, the functional medicine model is where, where it's like people are saying you know if you've got attack in your foot it takes a lot of aspirin to get rid of the pain but functional medicine is removing the attack and i was really interested in what causes these conditions and Kelly Brogan is like the first time I met Rongan Chatterjee is when Kelly Brogan came to speak. Dr. Kelly Brogan is a holistic psychiatrist in the US. And she came to speak in the UK in 2016 and Rongan was there. And this opened my eyes hugely to what's possible through lifestyle interventions, the power mm. of exercise, the power of social interaction. Um, and it just 
it was like my journey into this space, to be honest. And that's where I started as well. Um, but that came from worrying and that kind of pain about worrying about my friends and that kind of stuff, which led me to this place, which I'm very grateful for in the end. Thank you for sharing. I'm going to pick you up on something really interesting, which sure. is a lot of us do this, right? A lot of us sort of are, are a little apprehensive about sharing our pain because we're worried that maybe someone else has experienced more pain than us and it wouldn't be okay for us to share that. Mm-hmm. And what I say to that, that's really important that we all realize and this through delving deep into books and spirituality and, and personal growth is that suffering is ubiquitous in the human experience. And many of us maybe aren't aware of it and you could call it an awakening, you call it whatever you like, but when you kind of step into that, then you realize that at some stage, every one of us goes through suffering, whether it's a relationship, difficulty, whether it's a losing a job or a death, but everyone has that. And I think the more that we share that, like you've just done there, the, the more connected we feel because as humans, I think we'll be speaking about this today as humans, it's, it's in our DNA. It's our deepest desire to feel connected. But what's one of the main, why did we as humans feel the need to start connecting was to avoid suffering because living separate from tribes back in the day on this, you know, that was a dangerous, tense, worrying, fearful place to be. So please, if anyone is, no matter how small your suffering is, we, we, as a, as a human race moving forward, I think the way we share that is going to be so beneficial and yeah, compassion is something I put at the forefront of my values and so is openness. So there's my, uh, that's my rant on compassion and openness. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think it's key, mate. And your story is uh, is hugely inspiring as well. And I think it would resonate with a lot of people listening. And speaking of social interaction, this is going to segue quite nicely into something which I wanted to talk about, which is the importance of social interaction. And during this time where I think we're all... Uh, well, we just don't have it at the minute. The world is lacking social social interaction right now. Certainly most of us are. How have you found this time, for example, and what we're talking about now, if you're listening to this well into the future, we're in the midst of COVID-19. <laughs> yes. Well, like first thing I want to say is that for anyone who is suffering right now, who's living alone or feeling low or anxious, The most important thing you can do, and we'll speak about this later in the four A's model, but the most important thing you could do is understand the context of your feelings. Because if you are feeling like that, it does make sense because your usual avenues for connection have been shut off. However, right, in times of uncertainty and unpredictability, it's the most fertile ground for creativity. So... While we've had avenues shut off, we can't meet in person, we can't go to restaurants or bars or clubs, all those things that we used to do, uh, you you can jump on Zoom calls, you can um, set up a podcast group, you can start reading books together. And there is, we have amazing access to information. In fact, now we have more access to information than the President of the United States did in 1994. And that's just anyone, right? And in, in whether even in developing countries, that figure would still be accurate. So that's what I would say. Remember that this unpredictable time can be a time for creativity and for stepping into it. I'll share a personal story. So I shared uh, the story of my father and how he's had strokes and, and heart attacks. 
and uh, and the TIA a mini stroke. And truth be told, that does affect someone's brain. We know that strokes lead to, in some people, personality changes, and some people, dementia, depression is very very common as well. And we noticed that my father was in need of some connection, like we all were. Mm-hmm. But like many of us do as family members, right? We call up, you say, hey, dad, how's it going? <laughs> and your dad goes, yeah, fine. <laughs> That's a, you know, it's a very um, difficult thing to start broaching. I know people will resonate with this. And so there was, there was a lot of struggle. I, I knew I wanted to connect with my father around the start of the pandemic. In fact, before the pandemic happened. But my attempts had just been, had been really rubbish. I just wasn't very good at communicating it. And then I heard about this idea from one of the coaches that I follow whereby we set up like something that we're both interested in. I started to think when me and my father and my brother connected, he used to, when I was little, he used to sit and no matter how tired he was after a long day's work, he would sit and he'd ask me, Nilesh, what did you learn today at school? I was so lucky to have that. And we'd talk about what we'd learned and he'd ask me questions about science. He was was in backgrounds in chemistry. So, but of course, as you get older, you don't talk about, you know, like school, what did you learn today? But what we decided to do is, was um, each, me and my brother and my dad, select a podcast to listen to or a video that was 10 to 15 minutes, not a long time. And then every two weeks, meet up for half an hour and discuss the podcast. And this transformed my father. My father was writing notes on the podcast. He was so enthusiastic, inspired. He loved science. And of course, he was retired, not working, didn't have those, those groups. And all three of us, my brother lives in Spain, my father in the Netherlands, me here, we haven't seen each other physically for a long time, but we're closer than we've ever been. So I just want to share that story to show people that you know, in spite of the difficulties, it's, it is possible to strengthen your connections. That is a beautiful story, mate, and very, very inspiring as well. Um, it makes me think of all the ways I can connect with some of my friends and family, which I maybe haven't done for quite some time. Um, how what do you, you think? Go on. What, what what are you gonna What are you gonna do? How are you gonna connect to them then? <laughs> so, right for for context, Nilesh said he he would turn s- some of these uh, <laughs> questions that I'm uh, asking him onto me, um, so I was a little bit nervous knowing he would do this. Um, so how am I, <laughs> how am I going to how am I going to do it? Well, one thing which I, which I've just started doing, which I'm going to do much more of, is just playing games. So something which is uh, <laughs> which is just so obvious when you think about it is just when, when you do a Zoom call, do a game. Or recently, I've been meeting up with um, friends from that I went to university with, my undergrad, and on Zoom, and we do yoga together. So we have a catch up for about an hour, just banter, and then we do yoga. It's like every 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 Wednesday. And it's like, it's only like 20 minutes long. We pick a video on YouTube. I think we're doing like yoga with Adrian or whatever she is. She's like 9 million followers. And that has been honestly a game changer because it's hump day. Everyone feels a little bit blue on a Wednesday and it just really changes my week up. It means I can catch up with my friends. I see them all. We like interact. We talk about what we've done throughout that week, but also because we share an experience, which is doing the yoga together. We've got something else to talk about and bounce you know, bounce ideas off. Um, and that is probably something I'm going to consistently do and maybe bring things like that in with my family and other friendship groups. So there you go. That's fantastic. I absolutely love that. I'm, I think that's one for me to add in as well. I, I'm not sure if I get my dad doing yoga. But... 
<laughs> we'll see. Yeah, you need to ask him first. How do you feel, like, because this, this is something which I wanted to ask you as well. Like, because some people, like you've said, you know, some people are more connected than, than others right now. But this has affected everyone very, very differently. How do you feel, because you've been working in clinical practice as well, as well as mm -hmm. coaching. How do you feel this whole scenario has affected other people in general? Yeah. Well, I think, like I said, it's a time of uncertainty. And in any time of uncertainty, it does fire up your neural radar in your brain, your amygdala. And we all have it, no matter if you've been meditating in a cave for 20,000 hours, we yeah. all have this area of our brain that can fire up. But here's the important thing. If the story of your life so far has been one of struggling and strife and pain, then the moment that neural radar fires up, it starts to search for more suffering, pain, and anxiety. And this is something I work on with, with my coaching clients and my patients. It's about shifting things at a fundamental level, at a belief level, at an identity level, so that you no longer tell yourself that story because it's exactly that. It's, it is a story. So at first, people might be listening to this thinking, oh man, this is, this is a bit much. I don't know if I can do this. And what I'd say to that is, yeah, it is very uncomfortable, but true growth comes through discomfort. And when you sort of move forward and lean into it and embrace it. So I think right now people are suffering. It makes sense. Your radar is switched on. And just having an awareness of that can make you a little bit more peaceful in itself. And again, it can make you choose behaviors that are more associated with serenity and, and calm as opposed to, you know, busyness and struggle and strife. Something that you just said there, like, again, true growth comes from discomfort um, as well. That is that's something which really resonates with me. Uh, something I heard ages ago was um, uh, anything worth doing normally isn't easy. And, you know, it's the same thing, right? Like if you want to pursue a new career or something like that, normally taking that jump is really hard to do. It's quite nerve wracking. You have to overcome some maybe mental roadblocks in your mind, self-talk and things like that. But it's normally really beneficial in the long term. So these kinds of things, even though they're really difficult right now, these are going to hopefully bring in a lot of like mental fortitude and strength that we can carry on throughout the rest of our lives in my mind i couldn't agree more carol dweck's work on growth mindset is a huge part of what i do and it the realization of that was because when my son was struggling with he wasn't talking he had reduced eye contact and he you know he was having behavioral problems at nursery it was a very painful time i don't know if anyone's experienced that as a parent where you think hey I'll, i'm gonna be we all have this uh, rule in our head that I'm going to be a much better parent than my parents, even if my parents are good parents, right? Yeah, like, I'm going to be the best parent. And, and then it happens, and you, you're watching your your child's, uh, you know, like a suffering, and it is a lot of guilt that was associated with that. And I started to ask myself, actually, have I had a growth mindset about this parenting situation that I was struggling so deeply in? 
I was like at this point where I was thinking uh, my son's struggling with speech problems and communication difficulties. So I was thinking there's nothing I can do. You know, I was having this fixed mindset. And then I started, there was, there was this moment I was reading a book with him and it's a fantastic book by Rachel Bright called The Lion Inside. Anyone who's got kids highly recommend it. And this line in it said, if you want things to change, you first have to change you. And I was reading this, you know, I was like, if anyone else as parents, sometimes we can read books and not be present with it. But that line was like, it really hit me. What, 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 what book was that? It's called The Lion Inside. The Lion Inside. Okay. It's a great tale. It's about a, a mouse who wants to roar like a lion and goes and meets this lion. And, and yeah, so it's, it's about courage and moving forward. So once I, I read that, I was like, right, I, I was on, on a mission. I started reading books, books on psychology, spirituality, parenting, relationships, lifestyle medicine. And, and they all had the same line, you know, if you want things to change, you first have to change you. So I, I, would, I would say if anyone does feel stuck at some point in their life, it's not you, but it could be the mindset that you're adopting for some reason. And by just challenging that, no one is pure growth or pure fixed mindset, but by just challenging that area and going, hmm, could I develop more of a growth mindset? Hey, you you will see improvement, I'm sure. Awesome. You know, just to go back to this kind of uh, social interaction, because the, something that I wanted to touch upon as well with you is that um, I've been missing, and I'm not sure if you have as well, um, but you're probably in clinics and maybe it's, it's less apparent is the cross table talk. So like yeah. even just those random conversations, cause I'm a person who tends to think out loud and bounce ideas off people. And I'm unable to do that right now, to be honest. Um, occasionally I do it with my girlfriend, but she's like, what are you talking about? <laughs> she has no idea. So normally I'd be doing this with colleagues. And this is something which I've realized is when you were talking about connectiveness before that you brought up, it really is a disconnect on a level which I was not expecting. Because when you're working in a company, you're not just connected to that company, but you're connected to the people within it. Mm -hmm. And working remotely, even though I'm working for that company, and I know I speak to my colleagues daily, it's not the same as when you're in person. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know whether it's something that, that you've seen as well, and that kind of disconnectedness is like, perpetuated by the current situation we're all in where we don't even have the ability to see our friends to get that outlet yeah i think that's so true i mean face-to-face -face interactions i mean there's that really famous study from harvard in the 60s right which talks about the percentages of communication like how i think body language is about 55 percent tone of voice is around 30 percent and the actual words we say is only something like 7%, like a very low percentage. So when we're doing um, communication over Zoom or communication over the phone, you've got tone, which is very important, mm -hmm. but, but you don't have the body language. Um, and even on Zoom, a big part of body language is eye contact. And of course, we're, we're looking at the person on the screen, but maybe not looking directly into their eyes. 100%. Um, so... Yeah, I mean, we could go on a tangent about eyes because it's a really fascinating area of social because it does relate to social connection a lot as well. But um, Let's yeah, do I, do it. Com I do completely feel you. On that. <laughs> I mean, well, well, look, I mean, one thing that really fascinated me recently is, you know, as a doctor, I'm, I'm thinking about what's the treatments that have the least amount of harm but the most benefit, and uh, you start to hear about these things that are actually in nice guidelines. You know, they're actually in sort of widely accepted treatments. One of those treatments is 
eye movement desensitization reprocessing EMDR therapy for PTSD. I mean, if you think about this, that so people think, well, the way we can move our eyes can actually take away trauma, previous past traumas. So you just see how that for connection, for suffering, for love and growth, our eye movements are really, really, really important. We know that even more than more interesting than that is REM sleep, right? Rapid eye movement sleep. One of the most important features of rapid eye movement, rapid eye movement sleep is to process trauma and our emotions in a day. So eye contact and just the way we use our eyes is really underrated because eyes, of course, visual processing makes up a huge part of our, our brain's power. And of course, our brain is the one that's involved in connection and the release of those neurochemicals too. So that's the little tangent. I, I find it so fascinating. It's not something I was really taught much about at medical school. No, that's incredibly interesting. Um... I did not. I did not think about that at all. When you mentioned body language, no, though that is something I do miss. I've realised how dependent I am, and maybe it's something which I've never really picked up before because I've not had to, um, on other people's body language, and that is one of the ways I kind of interact with others. So on Zoom, I struggle a little bit reading other people's body language, and it's even more so in a group. Um, so that's kind of an element that I'm missing. Because that you can have a conversation and you see the person, but there is a delay. And people have talked about the delay on Zoom. It's like half a second, which throws your brain off. Um, <laughs> but that, that, I really struggle with that. So if people are smiling half a second before you expect them to, um, I think it's affecting me on a level which I never thought was, was even possible. Um, but there you go. That's just a, an experience of mine I'm sharing. I'm sharing a lot today. Good. That's a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, let, let, let's dive into something else because I've got all these things rattling on my head which I want to reel off and I don't want to make it into like a, a complete interview because I like having a conversation with you but equally you are uniquely qualified so I am going to ask you some questions and you might find them hard to answer <laughs> <laughs> so the, the, the medicine coaching background you know I was just thinking about what we were going to talk about today and I was like do you find that these coaching elements your training in coaching and kind of the, your passion, as it were, the stuff that you're putting out on Instagram is really influencing your medical practice and how you are with your patients. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yesterday, I'll give you an example of a story. Yesterday, I saw someone came onto my list, 22, needs a new sick note. Went and looked at the patient's notes and it said that she was sick with Gilbert's syndrome. Now, Gilbert's syndrome is usually not something someone's sick for months, it's usually an incidental finding on the blood test. They're there, Billy Rubin, one of the liver enzymes, it's just slightly raised. Most people don't have any symptoms at all. I thought, mm. this, this is strange. Been signed off for months. Anyway, I spoke to this really lovely girl. And to cut the long story short, she came out and openly shared after a while that she was lacking purpose. And she wasn't really engaged in the job that she was doing. And of course, then that just links so much... That's why I love personal growth and lifestyle medicine. There is a real uh, interconnection between the two of them. And we know there's, there's a lot of science behind sense of purpose. We know that our sense of purpose can change the way our brain is structured. It, it causes an increase in activation of the insula, the empathy center of our brain. It's amazing, right? We know that this um, having a sense of purpose makes you more likely to attend work. And one of the main root causes of people's depression is not having meaningful work. Ah, oh, fascinating. Right? 
So you see how these worlds, they're so, they're, they're so closely connected and sometimes it's good to have a non-medical spin on it because for me, um, you know, we talk about medicine, medicine is anything that's used in the preventional treatment of a disease. And I think that's why we have our friends like Daryl saying movement is medicine. And I would hundred percent agree with that. Yeah. That's why we, we can say connection is medicine. We can say love is medicine. You can say food is medicine. For me, I feel that I know sometimes that can polarize people, but for me, I feel that anything that can be used in the prevention and treatment of a disease is medicine. So yes, my coaching background really does help with that. The other way it really helps is just through communication and communication when before I went into coaching again I had some real painful moments of thinking that communication was about me <laughs> right here's, here's the painful this is all about the ego and the painful moment and when you start to delve into communication you realize it's not about you it's about the person on the other side the person who's receiving that information and yes yeah, so for me I find that aspect really fascinating i've always been fascinated in communication and that's always a, a natural segue from medicine to coaching and, and vice versa fascinating you, you, you know when i was um thinking about this because i've had mentors in the past and always assumed mentors are similar to coaches but they are actually in fact very different where a coach almost i mean you can obviously describe this much better than i can but my understanding is a coach almost makes helps you make your own decision about something when a mentor maybe is there to where you you draw from his experience is that correct or correct absolutely yeah so mentor is more of an advising role and there is great benefit in that and sometimes in my coaching sessions i, I literally say coach's hat off i learned that from my coach yeah. and sometimes it is good to be in that advising mode it's not always appropriate to be asking about people's inner wisdom but for me coaching is about inner wisdom and inner connection and everybody has this you might be like no I, I don't i don't have any inner wisdom it's like no you do because nobody knows your stories other than you and what we're doing in coaching is we're taking let's say i had a lady who was a phd yet she was struggling with relationships and anxiety she knew through her PhD that she was able to persist in the face of setbacks, achieve some amazing feats, progress, and even though it was a scary thing to do um, at the time. So it's about distilling those mindsets from things that they've already done and pulling it into other areas of their life. And it, everything is trainable, everything. That's why I'm, I'm so enthusiastic about it because everyone has their inner wisdom. And once you connect with that, through powerful questions and last thing i should say about coaching coaching's got a real future focus so that's how it differs from therapy therapy will go back and look at people's past and sometimes we do that in coaching but it's always with a okay and how are we moving forward what's the first small step you can take what are two okay. other ways you can proceed um uh, and, and you know i'm a very kind of high energy enthusiastic kind of person so that really did suit me quite a lot so yeah, so that's that's coaching therapy and mentoring in a nutshell. Yeah, I mean, you talked about inner wisdom, and maybe we should touch upon this a little bit because I believe, even though people have inner wisdom, everyone has certain roadblocks. Or hmm, let me articulate this in another way: 
have elements of their own personality or thought processes that may be holding them back. And this could be something like negative self-talk or pre preconceived ideas of themselves or even other people. And this prevents them from personal development, but also this could prevent them from achieving a health goal, for example, mm -hmm. which is why I'm interested in that health could be mental health, whatever, physical, etc. Have you found this to be the case? And if so, what do you think are the main roadblocks that are holding people back? Okay. So in one word, the answer is perception. And it, it's an uncomfortable truth, but like I shared with you all the suffering, you know, when I, I had some fixed beliefs about my son and his developmental struggles, I had fixed beliefs about what it was like to be a GP in this dream career. You know, I had all those things and I share that with you guys because like everyone does this, but there comes a stage where you wake up to the fact that I have power over my perception. And yes, maybe up to this point, my mind has been filled with things that have previously happened or my perception of what's previously happened has shaped what I'm currently doing. But that is really empowering. Some people think that's a negative thing. They've had difficult childhoods. They've, um, they've been in abusive situations, you know, and I've worked with many different people in medicine and in coaching who have had that. But there's this one lady I'm working now, so inspiring, amazing female entrepreneur, and she has gone back and she's changed the perception of those abusive traumatic pasts. And like, I'm not sitting here and saying, you're going to click your fingers, you're going to just choose your perception, and you'll be better tomorrow. No, of course not. Of course, it's not like that. But please know that whatever you're going through, whatever suffering you're going through, you can improve. And if you improve tomorrow, and the day after, and the day after, and the day after, that's a massive improvement over months and years. And that's where the power lies in, in regular improvement of your perception. That's really interesting. Because I'm just thinking like negative perceptions. So, so maybe like you're, you're focusing on something which you perceived as like an, a negative trait or something that you did, which you're perceiving as negative may not actually be and and something which you just reminded me of when you say perception is that people can experience the same thing but perceive it entirely differently um and you know it's the same with like a, a traumatic event for example that can affect someone massively differently in the short and long term if people hold on to that you know think about it too much mull it over um in the case of someone is having like perceiving things in a negative way more so than other people i mean it's very hard to quantify but you know what i mean i know what you mean exactly yeah what would you what would be the first steps to help them get over that or change okay. their perception okay so let's take an analogy so you want to develop a close relationship with somebody how do you approach that you trust them you listen to them you ask questions you show up consistently at the same time every day to meet them or whenever it is. And that's how you get a good relationship with someone. And we do this so often for our friends, for our loved ones, but how often do we do that with ourselves? And of course it's cliche, but it is the relationship you spend the most amount of time with is with yourself. And it's uncomfortable, but like we've said time and time again, that's where the true growth lies. So the first thing is to ask yourself questions. 
And I'll just say that again, because it is just so powerful. Ask yourself questions. A question could be as a small thing as what filled me with energy today? What drained me of energy today? What did I love about today? And sometimes it's going to be hard to answer those questions. I'm not saying that it's easy. But when you persistently ask those questions, what happens is, see, often people think their subconscious mind is a negative thing. Mm -hmm. But what the subconscious mind loves to do is to solve problems. You start asking questions, even if you don't know the answer then and there, you, you'll find this happens when you ask them frequently enough. Your subconscious mind will start coming up with answers when you're in the shower, when you're driving your car, when you're, you know, that default mode network is, is up and running. So ask yourself questions. The other reason why questions are so important is because a belief is something that you hold to be absolutely true. Now, again, I'll share something with you. You know, I believed that being a GP partner for me was going to bring me happiness and peace and all of those things. Why? Because, you know, when I was growing up, that's what people told me. And that became a fixed rule in my head, just mm -hmm. like the laws of gravity. <laughs> <laughs> but the truth is, is that rule is no more true than, you know, if I were to say that I have to be a pop star in order to be happy, you know, that's these things that they're rules that we make up. So when you start to question the rules, then you can start to tear down some of these beliefs that you hold to be absolutely true. Mm. And then the really cool thing, Ben, the next really cool bit is you go, oh, I could start to make up some beliefs now that I really like, you know, like, oh, like a belief of uh, every time something difficult happens, something great's going to happen soon afterwards. You could have that as a belief. You could have a belief of, I know that even when times are hard, I'm more creative. It, it doesn't matter what, what you choose, but what you'll then do is, if you make that belief, your actions will start supporting that belief. Mm -hmm. And that's how you start to shift your mindset and change and, and liberate yourself, basically. It, is this um, similar to like why people use affirmations? God, I'm so glad you spoke about this. Yes. So affirmations, really interesting one. And, and it, something really funny happened, which is I wrote affirmations, I probably say over a year ago, I wrote some affirmations and only, only recently I looked at them after a while and you know at the time i remember feeling really annoyed like i'm not calm <laughs> I, I, i'm not peaceful why is why am i saying these things um, um but but then like i said the subconscious mind it kind of remembers that and then every now and again someone says no no she looked really much calmer and you think wow that that is magic but what the magic is is this is that we think of thoughts, words, deeds. Everyone knows it's thoughts, words, deeds, right? You have a thought, it leads to words, and then there's emotion somewhere in between, and then that leads to your actions. But if you want to really flip your mindset, people say do affirmations. But for me, the first thing must be the deed. Mm -hmm. You start with an action. You flip it around. Start with an action. So let's say you want to be a more positive mindset. Just play with your imagination. Think, what do positive people around me do? Okay, they're good in relationships. Maybe they work out. Maybe they eat loads of vegetables. Well, it doesn't matter, but start with one small action. Then when you do that action, that's when the affirmation comes in. And you affirm your action with the words. Right? And you hear people like Dr. BJ Fogg and you say, celebrate it, you know, he, from Stanford, the behavioral scientist. When you then create an action, 
with a positive emotion, you affirm it with the words. Remember, the words are really just there to communicate the emotion that you have. Okay. Right? Emotion is very important for behavioral change. Yeah. So, and then that changes your thoughts. And that's it. Yeah. So uh, just a point on this, because cause you said before that you were really frustrated and not calm when you were saying that you are calm. And you said emotions are really important in that process. Yeah. So how does it work in in that regard? Because surely that is the opposite. You're right. And what happened then was at the start, I felt like that. Okay. But remember, again, this is probably a good time to talk about sort of the learning cycle, which many of us know about. Everything is learning. Everything is trainable. That's why I'm talking about a learning cycle here. So, and a caveat says, I'm not saying you can be amazing at everything, but everyone can be a little bit better. That's what I'm saying. The learning cycle, it starts off as you're unconsciously incompetent. You don't know what you don't know. Okay, so maybe you haven't even seen a bike before in your life, so you're not annoyed at the fact that you can't ride it. But then your mate starts riding a bike and you become consciously incompetent. Yeah. Okay, you become aware, oh my God, I don't. And that's a very unpleasant feeling. Every one of us goes through this, no matter whether you're the best drummer in the world, the first time he picks up the drumsticks, he's still going to feel consciously incompetent. He knows what he doesn't know. Now, people that go on to levels of mastery, and my coaching is in, in high performance, right? So it's the people who are succeeding beyond the standard norms. This is the key bit. What they do then is they they associate that feeling of becoming consciously incompetent with a positive emotion. And they say, yeah, like I suck at this now, but let's do it. Like this feels good. Uh, you know, like the first time I started reading some of the lifestyle medicine stuff, I thought this is all over my head, but I love it. I'm going to keep doing it. And if you keep doing it with enough positive emotion, you keep moving forwards, you then become consciously competent. Right. You know, and then, then, and then mastery is unconsciously, unconsciously competent, which is like driving a car. You're not thinking about it. You're just going for it. So something that you just brought up there is really interesting because I've come into situations before where I think just people being uh, unconsciously incompetent, but thinking that they're competent. So it's like almost right be having the only bike in the world, even though you're riding it with stabilizers, right? Thinking that you're riding it correctly and you're not. Um, and I almost think this is almost more damaging than if they knew nothing on the topic at all. Okay. Well, like I said, I was going to ask you a question because as a coach, I'm always interested in what's the <laughs> what's the story behind that question. Okay. So what's the story behind that question? So when I got really interested in nutrition and, you know, I was going to use someone else's uh, story about someone else, but I'm not going to. Um, I'm going to use a story about myself. Um, and sharing a lot in this podcast, Nilesh. Good. That's so, <laughs> what we want. That's what we want. So, um, what, so when I started out in my biomedical degree quite some time ago now, it was um, I got really interested in different dietary protocols and what they could be used in different lifestyle interventions and how they can be used to promote health. And I was looking at vegan diets um, for lowering cholesterol and blood pressure and things like that, but also the ketogenic diet. And we can go into like the biochemistry of like how, you know, you burn fat as a fuel source. You develop these things called ketones, which are really good molecules um, to uh, 
promote energy production for your brain and your diaphragm to put it in the simplistic terms um or your brain and diaphragm can utilize these molecules for energy and it was more efficient than glucose now and this is what i was i was certain of and i read i was so biased and i'm very happily uh, admit this now so biased because the journals i was reading was just reaffirming my own thought process so i never read anything which challenged <laughs> challenged my ideas um so i thought the ketogenic diet was the best diet and i don't understand why everyone else doesn't know this right and i think you know it helps with a, a number of different things but blood pressure, weight. I mean, I tried it. I dropped lots of weight very easily. Um, yeah. And and a few other things, you know, didn't have any appetite in, in the mornings, which I was always woke up starving, used to train a lot. Um, and it, it just worked very well for me in terms of energy production and everything else. And I was just married to this idea that everyone should be on it. And then as you learn more, you realize uh, what you don't know. <laughs> and then and then how much information there is out there opposing information and i've come to this conclusion now and it's the developing theory and i might change my mind and you know i'm well in, within my rights to do so that everyone is different and everyone can thrive off different diets um i mean that goes against a lot of the different communities that are out there the opposing communities with the with the advent of the carnivore diet and also the low-fat vegan community i think very opposing sides of the argument and um, but i always refer back to western a price you know the original book nutrition and degeneration found that ind indigenous tribes can thrive off multitude of different diets and um, with different macronutrient profiles um, and different amounts of animal products some of them were mm. pretty much solely animal products and they were thriving in no instances or very very low instances of heart disease and cancer and things like that and some mm -hmm. of them were vegan and the health mm. outcomes were pretty much the same so mm. and, and these are humans at the end of the day so this is my current thought process right now but the point was when i was younger and i had this little bit of knowledge i thought this is the only way. And I think that is still the case with many people, or some people just read a nutrition book, one, with a bias, and believe that this is it, this is the, this is the truth. Um, and you know, the truth is, like, the truth is not what you know, it's in what you don't know. Yeah. That's, it's a great story. And thanks for sharing that. And it's really, Sorry, I probably really could have loved. articulated it a little bit better, but no, no, you <laughs> did. A, honestly, that was a perfect articulation, Ben. It was, it was really, really nice what you said. And I completely understand where you're coming from. I think, I think the bigger topic here is really about how it makes us feel remember this is all about responsibility we are perceiving what other people do always remember that always comes back yes. to how we perceive things how does it make us feel when somebody is perhaps putting things out there that are against our viewpoints or perhaps aren't explained in a way that we agree with and again here it, it's all about communication this is why i say coaching is so fascinating and I encourage everybody to read about communication because just like anything, it's a skill that can be learned. Everyone can be better. I'm constantly trying to improve because <laughs> oh, it's a difficult skill. Uh, when somebody 
expresses a viewpoint that you don't agree with, you really have two options. Number one is sometimes the fact that you disagree with it, it acts as a mirror for you to say, hmm, maybe that person reminds me of me a few years ago. And maybe I was a bit overzealous a few years ago. And maybe actually that makes me feel uncomfortable because I used to do that and I'm still doing that a little bit now in mm -hmm. some areas of my life. And I really enjoy the, the holding the mirror up for myself because it makes me feel uncomfortable. And now I go, yes, I love feeling uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah, it's valuable. <laughs> you are so right. The second, the second option, which is, I think is a really beautiful one and actually leads us really nicely onto our next topic is compassion. When you develop a compassion for everyone, then you probably start to understand, okay, what's, what's the context of that person's actions? Okay, maybe that person's read one textbook and they're putting all of their stuff out there online, but maybe what we don't know is three of their family members have died from a condition and they like really have feel like there's an urgency that yeah. they need to put that out there. Mm -hmm. And maybe we should be showing that person a bit of love and go, okay, just or curiosity and interest. Okay, well, what's going on there? Maybe it's something I don't know about. So that's what I would say to that. I actually think that people who are consciously competent, that's a bit more of the dangerous area because you're conscious of what you know. And sometimes I think you think that there's not much more to know. But when you go to that mastery level of unconsciously competent, you know, because you're a bit unconscious of it again, you know that, gosh, it's just, I'm never going to know everything. And there's just always going to be more to learn. Last thing I say about this is that everybody should have access to a coach. Now, what I mean by that, I don't mean that everyone needs to have one-on-one -on -one coaching, but everybody should have access to a coach. The reason for this is coaching is the single biggest act of humility anyone can take. Because coaching asks you to look inwards, you talk about maybe things that have frustrated you, bothered you, and there's everybody can develop, mm -hmm. which is why you have presidential candidates in the States and having coaches. You know, why are these people who are, you know, I probably shouldn't say much about presidential <laughs> candidates in the States, but um, everybody has a chance to, to develop and grow. And learning is, is an act of humility. No, I completely agree. And just to circle back, when I see things, and you know, I'm, you know, I, I'm, I'm probably, st I'm definitely still guilty of this. So I probably post things which I think are true, or maybe there's evidence for. But I'm always very conscious, and I maybe don't portray this in or convey this in, in the right way, that my mind can change, the science might change. And I don't also want to say that just because someone has read a book and is posting about it, they are wrong because that's not necessarily true either. Mm -hmm. It's just that they have a, an idea about something which is only from a singular or maybe a very small number of sources and therefore might be myopic in their view. So... But there's learnings from that as well, because they might teach me something which I didn't know about that topic. So like you said, I'm always trying to check myself, right? <laughs> Making sure like I'm not being too egotistical about these things. I'm always willing to learn and I'm always willing to be proven wrong, mm -hmm. um, which I think is an important trait as well. I, yeah, well, I hopefully I've, I've just realized what I said. I was like, I'm always willing to be proven wrong. Isn't that brilliant? <laughs> it's not. <laughs> 
<laughs> no, you're wrong. At all. You're yeah. wrong. <laughs> um, absolutely love being wrong. Love being wrong because it's a chance for improvement. And yeah, I think I think that's true. One thing I will say about medicine, and my whole view on this changed when my son started to suffer, like I said, with basically um, developmental and ADHD type symptoms. Now, mm. the, the sort of the gross, big mass studies on these conditions can be helpful to an extent. But I know as patients, people come up and say, oh, this friend tried this and they're better. And that's the population of one. Yeah. <laughs> but we know that as patients, when that one person gets better, that might be enough for that person to try it. And if there's minimal risk of harm, and that's the most important thing, most important thing, if there's minimal risk of harm, go for it. And recently I, I um, recommended a, a friend who I, I don't know her too well, but her name's Ruth and she does a technique called havening. And two years ago, I would have thought that that was completely outside of my toolkit as a doctor and a coach. Yet, I know that even if it helps one person when I try it with, that could be life-changing for that person. So my whole view on evidence has changed quite a bit. And, you know, some of the stuff about positive psychology, that, that there's quite a lot of studies on them, but the numbers are very small. Uh, my wife's an obstetrician gynae doctor. So I was talking to it. my wife. She said, having people in the study, I said 200. She said, oh, that's nothing. Said, that is, that's a lot for positive psychology. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I think I think we need to, you know, when, when we're asking people, oh, about gratitude, it's like, what's the harm in gratitude? Yes, right. So, you know, I might sit there and say, there's this study on gratitude and the, the skeptics, which is great to have them, might go, oh, yeah, it's another good study. And I said, be grateful. <laughs> but, you know, it's, it, you say, well, what's the harm? What's the harm in being a little bit more grateful or yeah. compassionate? Yeah, there's, there's uh, several elements there that I want to unpick. You hit the nail on the head in terms of if there isn't a chance or there's a very low to no chance of harm, why not try an intervention which may or may not work, even if it's mm. just anecdotal evidence? And I still think of this today. Um I don't understand why people are so uh, against not using something which that that is very safe but might be beneficial. And I always think when someone's really struggling and they just want to try anything, these tools should be available to them. Now I know there's always that line of like do no harm, which I think you you have to exercise first. You know that Hippocratic mm -hmm. oath. Um, but there are instances which I think we can be in the healthcare community a little bit more flexible in our approach. And the other thing which I wanted to touch upon was the fact that you said there was skeptics, which yes. were you know, like not, and I, I always think this is true. I actually welcome skeptics, but um, I, I completely disregard cynicism. So, um, yes. and I think it's really important. People should be willing and, and open to challenging others on their beliefs, because I think that's why we grow. You know, mm -hmm. um, I posted recently, and I probably shouldn't be saying this, but I'm going to anyway, um, that uh, I posted recently on um, Rupee, the Doctor's Kitchen post, and I just said, like, I don't always agree in 100% everything that you, that you have out there, but you know what? I absolutely love your content because it allows me to grow in my beliefs. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I still think that today I have huge respect for him Yes, we don't agree on 100% everything, but do you know what? I, I disagree, um, 
you know, on something with basically everyone. And I hope other people disagree with me on things too, because that's the way we grow. Hell, you know, most, most of my friends I disagree with <laughs> on like their beliefs on certain topics and things. And I think it's one of the reasons why they're my friends at the end of the day. And um, because they challenge you and help you grow. So I think that's, that is something which I've certainly noticed on reflection in lockdown more so than anything else. Yeah. And I think you, you've, again, really nicely articulated that, Ben. I think disagreeing isn't the problem, but like you said, it's, is it with a, an energy of cynicism or skepticism is, is actually more of an energy of curiosity, isn't it? Yes. It's like, yeah. I, I need more information. Um, so really interesting to, to, to see how those words just a slight change in the word completely different meaning um so I, I completely agree with that and when you come from a place of compassion you're always trying to understand other people and curious about them then it's very healthy to disagree because that can help you with your learning just like you say you'll be able to find out more information and when you touched upon compassion i know you mentioned your four a's of compassion before but we didn't really dive into them could you explain that in a little bit more detail? Yes, I'd love to. Yeah, so compassion is a huge part of my life. And I didn't realize that till relatively recently, but it's a big part of my medical work as well. And I I started to, to read a bit because I, I felt a bit confused. You know, what is it? Is it empathy? Is it is it sympathy? Is it compassion? Well, the best way I could describe what compassion is, is empathy says I feel you compassion says I intend to heal you so compassion is not just having an awareness of suffering but it's taking action to relieve the suffering and that starts with ourselves because the sooner we can do that in ourselves the easier it is to do that with other people and that's why you know at the start we were talking about questioning your beliefs questioning your negative emotions understanding the context of your actions so the four A's of compassion are as follows. The first A is be on your A game. Now, it's very difficult for you to be compassionate with other people if you haven't practiced compassion with yourself. Like I said, if you're in a place of negativity and suffering, you're going to find that much harder for you to give your full presence and attention. The second A is show an awareness of suffering. So if a friend's speaking to you and they're maybe telling you a story about something, very often people are not explicit about the feelings of their stories or words they share with you. And that's where showing an awareness of someone's suffering is amazing. I mean, some people might hear this and say it's a strong word suffering, but quite often we're sharing things like, oh, it was really, I, I just had, uh, I just spilt berries all over my kitchen, <laughs> you know, <laughs> or, you know, or I, I missed a, I missed a delivery that was meant to be there. So, at that stage, where you will find so much value in your relationships is if you either use the same adjective they've used, if they are explicit, they're often not, or you take a guess. And there's a great psychologist in, in Harvard who speaks about how we actually only use like three or four words for feelings. So I would really recommend people take a deep dive and have a look at, you know, was it frustrating, upsetting, annoying? use the word you say it must have been frustrating must have been confusing always from a place of genuine love for that person that's the second day the third a is an agreement in meaning so that's again understanding the context of somebody's feelings and actions based upon what they've been doing in their life so if for example a patient comes in and speaks to me and they say that they've had their ankle 
a lot of the time as doctors, I, I know a lot of my clinicians and friends, sometimes they can get confused. Like, why is this person coming in with, with, the, with the pain in their ankle? And, you know, they're, they're not too bad. But when you find out that they're meant to be walking their daughter down the aisle that, that week, and they don't want to be limping down the aisle because their mother's recently died as well, that's the context. And if a, sen if a situation isn't making sense to you, you need to gain more context. You need to be more curious and, and show that person that there's an agreement in the meaning of their circumstances with a phrase like, it makes sense. Okay, and then the last day, the fourth day is take action to relieve that suffering. And probably the best and most compassionate action you can give somebody is your full presence and attention and deep listening. There's plenty of studies that show that deep listening can reduce blood pressure. It can um, boost oxytocin levels. So we know that when you practice those four A's of compassion, I urge everyone to try that. First of all, be on your A game, make sure you've looked after yourself, be kind to yourself. Awareness of suffering, use the guess the feeling behind people's words show them that there's an agreement in the meaning find out about their circumstances does it make sense given what's happened and then the last is take action to relieve that suffering which could be deep listening it could be getting some of a cup of tea or a glass of water or an action i love that absolutely love that you know and one thing i wanted to end on is um you know, we, we talked about cultivating happiness just before the podcast, and I think those four A's are, are certain, certainly ways to, in doing so. Um, what what would your be your strategies if we're going to end on a high note before I ask you the three questions of ways to, to cultivate joy and happiness in people's lives? Okay, so I've been playing around with this a lot myself because I'm always reading things and asking myself the questions. And... Research shows, you know, Ed Diener and Martin Seligman did this study called the Very Happy People Study, where essentially they, they took college students, they did happiness ratings on them, found out from the happiest people in that study, what were the characteristics that they had in common. And the characteristic was quality social relationships. That was the most predictive factor of people's happiness. Now, every time I say this to someone, people inherently feel something, maybe in their heart, they feel something in their gut, they're like, yeah, that, that just makes sense. So, but what if I got out your calendar right now, and here comes the challenge, this is the coach in me. If I got out your calendar right now, could you show me where you're working on your relationships in that calendar? Are there date nights? Are there groups that you're going to? Um, are you doing something every day, like brushing your teeth? Is there a ritual you have, like leaving a gratitude note for a loved one every day? And if they're, if they're not, no worries. Don't, we don't need to beat ourselves up, but try it. Try and schedule a little bit of time every day for working on your relationships and your nearest and dearest. For me, that's your surefire way to improving happiness. Love it, mate. Absolutely love it. So one more thing before I, I ask you the three questions, which I ask everyone that comes on the show, is, and I haven't forgotten about it, how is your son doing now? And also, how is your dad now? Yeah, so these are both really happy stories. And like I say, when you when you start to try and improve things i think people imagine that you know it's a miraculous heal and a cure and completely better but both of them are significantly better my father is um is extremely resilient so he's had kidney transplant and he's much better it's amazing that we can do that so we're very grateful for him and he's 
he's in a really good mindset as well through the podcast conversations that we've been having. And my son as well has improved significantly. We're every day trying new things and helping him quite a bit. And it's been, it's really inspired me. His developmental challenges has inspired me to learn more about the brain. And it's just fascinating. But most of all, I've got a great relationship with him and it's lovely. So that's, um, yeah, that, that's where they are. Fantastic. And I'm glad I asked you that because I know many people would have been wondering since you brought them both up throughout this uh, this conversation. So thank you very much for sharing. No worries. Just before you go, I ask three questions to everyone that comes on the show. So it's going to be no different. You're getting asked them. <laughs> <laughs> so the first one, Nilesh, is what has been the biggest health, um, sorry, what health change has had the biggest impact on your life and why? meditation for me going inwards building that meditation habit was really the stepping stone for me to getting to know myself feeling happy in my own skin and my own thoughts and then that being a stepping stone to going out and helping people in a way that I wouldn't have been able to do and, you know, there's so many studies on this that changes the way your brain structures and functions. I, I can 100%, I can feel that. I feel like my whole personality has changed for the better since I've meditated. So that's that's for me. Awesome. Second one, how can healthcare become more integrated with the kind of modalities that we have spoken about today? And I guess these kind of interventions and thought processes. Yeah. So I'm going to go with the kind of coaching hat on here and say communication. So I'm a big believer in unity. That's a big value, a thing that's close to my heart. And it really hurts me to see that there are people out there who are trying to help people, but they're, they're, we're spending our energy arguing with one another when we agree on so much. So how we can integrate is through communication, through unity, through compassion, openness, and yeah, I, I feel like if we all took a little bit more time in, in improving communication, which every single one of us can do, that's the key to, to integrating healthcare. Fantastic. I couldn't agree more with you on that one. And just before I ask you the last question, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Can you please tell the, the listeners where they can find you and what exciting projects that you have coming up? Yes, thanks so much for asking about that. So you can find me on Instagram. I'm pretty active on there, at Dr. Sakru. That's D-R-S-A-T-G-U-R-U. And you can find me on, I'm, I'm building a community, which is to inspiring pe inspire people to believe in growth. I hope you've felt that message today that <laughs> I believe that everyone can be a little bit better, no matter where they've been, where they are, where they're going. I put out free content every week, which goes relatively deep into the science and and personal stories and anecdotes all focused on frameworks and actions to move you forward also explain the reasons why and so that's believeingrowth.uk so www.believeingrowth.uk and you can you can sign up to that content there and um, that's the that's the kind of big exciting project I've got at the moment. Uh, I'm, I'm very much enjoying building my coaching business as well. And I'm working with just a small number of clients, but they're just wonderful people that I'm developing a good relationship with. So, yeah, I, I, 
I think that's that's enough for the time being. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly. Um, and the final question, which I ask everyone, can you provide three quick tips? And I know you've provided tons already <laughs> yeah. um, to help improve the listener's health and well-being from today. Cool. I'm going to focus specifically on relationships. We spoke about that quite a bit. So number one, show an awareness of your closest loved one's suffering by using a, a adjective and the feelings and asking, ask them. That must have been frustrating. That must have been annoying. Just just try that even once a day. If you could do that, I I, I imagine when you practice it, you'll, you'll find that you, you nail it sometimes. And that feels really nice for both parties. The second thing is for a loved one or someone close to you, send a gratitude note every day at the same time. So it could be a WhatsApp message. It could be a, a little note that you write. If you feel uncomfortable writing gratitude, make it a joke, something that's going to elevate and uplift that person. And when you send it, send it with like love and feeling good. But, you know, don't. And I remember when I first started doing that, I would wait to see their reaction. <laughs> do they like it? Yeah. <laughs> Try not to do that. I realized that was not such a good thing to do. Um, so just send it for the love of it. That's the, that's the second thing. Relationships. And the third thing is one we don't speak about enough, but it's something that's, again, very close to my heart. And it's forgiveness. Okay, you will have arguments and conflicts with people close to you that you love, mums, dads, cousins, brothers, sisters. And holding on to anger, this is a, an old proverb, holding on to anger is kind of like holding on to a hot piece of coal with the intention for you to throw it at someone else. But of course, you get burned by the coal when you hold on to it. Now understand that every day, if you feel any sort of anger or frustration or blame or guilt, it makes us sick, it makes us unwell, we suffer. So practice letting go of that. And that, that you know, we could speak for a whole podcast on that, but I would I recommend people try that. Love that. Thank you so much. Nilesh, you've been an absolute joy to speak with, diving into all elements of positive psychology. And I do hope that we can do this again soon. It's been such a pleasure, Ben. I love finding out about your stories too. Thank you for listening to the Functional Health Podcast. You can find links to everything that we talked about today in the show notes. If you have a second, please consider leaving a five-star rating on iTunes. It really does make a huge difference and helps get this valuable information out and reach more people. Don't forget to subscribe so you can stay up to date and know whenever I release a new episode. You can connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, or our website, and all questions are welcome. As always, thanks to Joss Aurelia for the editing and Alan Harper for his support.